The following message is by Brother Connor Harris, Associate Pastor at North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles this morning, you can be turning to Psalm 113. Psalm 113. There is a word that uh, is pretty commonplace in the church environment, a word that we often sing in hymns. Uh, I was looking out for it today, but I don't don't know if I noticed it or not. I may have missed one. it's a little bit like the word amen, or like even like calling people brother or sister, where it's so commonplace in the church environment that sometimes we kind of forget what it means. Um, it's the word hallelujah. Hallelujah. How many times do you think in your life you've said the word hallelujah, you've heard someone say the word hallelujah? Even people who uh, don't know God, people who are non-Christian, even they know the word hallelujah. And a lot of times it gets kind of thrown around like a word that's just sort of a, it's like a sigh of relief, you know, hallelujah. Or it's, you know, finally I got something, eureka, almost like that. But it's not hard to figure out what the word hallelujah means, actually. And a lot of the context in our hymns teach you sort of what it means. And a lot of you might remember a song that you learned probably as a kid in church that taught you what the word hallelujah means. If you've ever sang hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And he said, praise ye the Lord, right? Praise ye the Lord. Did you know that's what the word hallelujah meant or were you just singing the song? I didn't know that for a long time. I was like, that's just a song. Praise ye the Lord, that's what you say. You didn't know you were learning Hebrew. Praise ye the Lord, hallelujah. The word hallelujah is, it's really a phrase in the Hebrew that gets mashed up as one word for us now in English. It really means it's a command to praise. You all praise the Lord. Play, praise specifically Yah. Who is Yah? Yahweh. The word hallelujah, it's an exclusive word of praise for our Lord, who himself is unmatched by any other God, is unmatched, is more deserving of praise than anyone or anything has ever been or ever will be. Hallelujah means to praise the Lord, not any Lord, the God of Israel, the creator of the universe, our Savior, Yahweh. This morning, we're going to read Psalm 113, and it begins and ends. You might not see it in English, but it begins and ends with the word hallelujah. We translate it as praise the Lord. And what we're going to see is that the writer of Psalm 113 has, uh, of the many reasons you could praise God and the many things that set him apart from idols and set him apart from people, the psalmist is going to pick one, one specific thing one specific reason to praise the Lord and think one thing that, that sets him apart from anyone or anything else. And it's this, that no other God, no other person has ever shown such grace as our Lord. No other God has ever, sitting on such a high throne, reached so low to pick up those who are humble in heart. Let's read Psalm 113. We'll start in verse one. It says, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. 
The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer to start off. God, I thank you for these verses. I thank you for your word that you've preserved for us. Lord, please bless the reading of your word. I pray that you'd bless those who are here this morning who have a desire to know more about you, to know who you are. And Lord, help us all to give you glory in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Psalm 113 actually begins a pretty significant series of psalms in the book of Psalms, and you may not know it, but if you've ever heard of the Hallel, uh, the Hallel was a series of psalms from 113 to 118 uh, that the Jews would traditionally read around some of their more significant feasts. Uh, They would read it at Passover. They would read them at Pentecost and Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication. Uh, These are psalms of praise just because they, and they begin with the word hallel, uh, like this one, uh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Uh, They're sometimes called the Egyptian hallel, this specific series, 113 through 118, because they reminded the Jews of their exodus from Egypt. If you guys remember uh, when Jesus and the disciples were in the upper room and they sang a hymn before they went to the Mount of Olives, uh, likely, we're not told, but likely what they sang uh, would have been uh, Psalms or, or recited would have been Psalms 115 through 118. Before the meal, they would read this one that we just read together, 113 and maybe 114, and then read the rest afterwards. So it was a, it's a significant portion of the book of Psalms. But Psalm 113 begins with this call to praise, to praise God. We use that word a lot, don't we? To praise God. Throughout all times and across all peoples, the psalmist wants us to understand that God's name is worthy of praise, regardless of the people, regardless of the time. Now, while praising the Lord can take different forms, uh, it always involves expressing your admiration about what makes God great, about the things that make him great. Uh, You can think about the word boasting, and we don't boast in ourselves because you and I are are sinners. We're unrighteous, but we boast in the greatness of God. We boast in who he is, his own glory. To praise God is to to boast in his qualities, to boast in his characteristics. And sometimes it comes from a heart of thanksgiving. I want to praise God because I know he's done something specific for me. Other times it just comes from the spiritual satisfaction that the Lord gives us. We praise the Lord because I'm just I'm satisfied to give him all the glory I can, all the honor I can in my life. Sometimes it's put to music or it's sung. Sometimes praise is simply spoken or shouted. And the beginning of this psalm just begins simply with this call to praise the Lord. The psalmist calls specifically. He says, "Praise O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord." When you come to know the name of God, it should elicit praise from your heart. It should make you want to boast in who he is. It should make you want to lift his own name up and tell other people about who he is. The psalmist here, he specifically talks about the servants of the Lord. Though though all creation we're about to see should be praising the Lord and his name is worthy of praise everywhere, the psalmist calls on servants of the Lord. Because when you serve God, when you submit to him, 
and you're obeying him and you taste and you see how good God is, you have plenty of reasons to lift his name up and praise him. You have all the reasons to glorify his name. People who have trusted in him and have experienced his grace, you should be praising God. You should be praising God. He says to praise the name of the Lord. And when we see that phrase, the name of the Lord, it's not just talking about the name of God, Yahweh, like a label. You know, if you talked about the name, my name, Connor, it's a series of letters and that's how you know who I am. You call me Connor. But when we talk about the name of the Lord, it's not just a series of letters. It's not just the word Yahweh as we know it in English. But the name of the Lord is his character. It's his reputation. It's, it's who he is, what makes him him, what distinguishes him from anyone or anything else. God's name is gracious. God's name is, is mighty. It's, it's magnificent. He stands apart from everyone else. That's, that's his name, his reputation. There is no other name like the Lord. And that doesn't mean that there's no one else named Yahweh. That means that there is no one else that has the character that our God has, who does the things that our God has, that the, 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 the tremendous grace we're about to read about. No one else shows that. To praise the name of the Lord, it's to praise all those wonderful qualities of our creator that he's revealed to us. He's shown to us in so many ways through his word and individually in your own life. Hopefully you can, you can from your own experience of his grace, see how God has provided for you and his name should be great in your heart and you should want to praise him. The psalmist says that his name in verse two is blessed. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And what you see here in these two verses is that the psalmist is saying God's name is worthy of being boasted about, is worthy of being praised through all time and through all space. In verse two, he describes it as from this time forth and forevermore. There's never going to be a time where God's name starts to lose its luster, <laughs> where God's name stops being so glorious, where, where he stops being as mighty and as caring and loving as he is. He will always be worthy of your praise as long as you live and as long as time goes on. God is worthy of your praise. In verse three, it says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And uh, for you and I, when we think about the rising of the sun and its setting, you might immediately go to, that's talking about time. It's talking about throughout the whole day. But for them, that's how they talked about space. That's how they talked about, it's like us saying east to west. In fact, their words were the same. The psalmist is saying God's name is worthy of praise from this time forth and forevermore. And it doesn't matter where you are. You could be far in the east. You can be far in the west. You should be praising the name of God. You should be lifting his name up and boasting in him. Everyone has reason to do so. God's glory isn't lesser in some parts of the world, but as the creator, he should have praise from all creation. As humans, every human being is created in his image Everyone who bears his image should be giving glory to his name. The psalmist calls his name blessed in verse two, and maybe you've stopped to think about that before, or maybe not, but that, you know, why we call God blessed or why we ever say that I'm blessing the name of the Lord. You know, we know God blesses us. He, he gives to us. We're lower than him, but why do we call God blessed? It's, and it's because and the idea is that God, he, it's from his own abundance. It's from his own blessing, his own life that he distributes blessing. God's name is full of life and abundance and he willingly gives it and that makes his name blessed. That makes his name worthy of praise. 
No doubt the psalmist could spend many verses. We could talk all morning about all the things that make God's name praiseworthy, all the reasons why the whole world should praise the name of God. But you see in verse four and in the rest of these verses that the psalmist has one particular, particular idea in mind. Uh, he has one thing that he wants to uh, single out for us so that we would praise God. And it has to do with how the Lord uses that glorious name that he has. In verse four, it says, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord, our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. The psalmist is, of course, speaking poetically, speaking figuratively through these verses. We know that God is, I mean, he's omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere. He sees everything. He knows everything. He hears everything. But here we have this picture of the Lord, and the psalmist says he's, he's high above all the nations. The psalmist first wants to establish with us that, that the Lord and his glory and his name is so far above us, so high above us, that it's above the heavens itself. He says in two ways he describes this. He says, the Lord is high above all the nations and his glory above the heavens. The nations were those peoples that lived, uh, that lived that existed outside of Israel. They referred to the nations or the Gentiles, we might know them. Even today, you can think about, you know, are, are nations powerful? Do nations have a lot of authority? Are they pretty high up in the world? You think about the power of just our own government and the power of the governments around us and the peoples across this world. It's intimidating. There's a lot of power. There's a lot of authority there. But the Lord... He's high above them. God doesn't answer to a worldly government. He doesn't answer to the government of the United States or any other government. He doesn't answer to any other peoples. God is, he's high above all of them. His authority is high above all of them. Like this, the psalmist says, his glory is above the heavens. Now, I asked our VBS kids this week what the word glory means. And every time it comes up on Wednesday night, I ask our kids what the word glory means. Because there's another word that we say a lot. Sometimes we forget what glory is. What is glory? Um, I always tell our kids to remember the word impressive or impressiveness. It's what makes God impressive. It makes whatever impressive. Uh, literally, the Hebrew word is the idea of weightiness or heaviness when you're talking about glory. If you went out after a rainy day like we had yesterday and you took a hand weight and you set it down in the mud and you left it for a day and you came back the next day and you picked it up, what would it leave? Big impression in the mud, right? A big divot in the mud. It left a, an impression. It was weighty. It caused a change there. Glory is kind of an abstract version of that. It, it takes that idea and applies it to the nature of a person or a thing or, or God. God is impressive. When God does things, when God says things, they don't go without an effect. <laughs> they are impressive. They leave their mark when God acts, when he does things. Um, God's glory is impressive. But you notice this, uh, the psalmist says that his glory is above the heavens. Now, when we talk about the heavens, we're talking about, I think here the psalmist is referring to, again, what's above the earth. Have you ever spent a night looking above the earth to, to view the stars at the sky at night? Uh, even here, when we have all the light pollution around Bryant, Arkansas, you can still go out and be in marvel at the glory of the skies. But you think specifically back over where they lived, to go where there is no light pollution, where you can see all the stars at night and you can see just how vibrant and incredible the heavens are, it's glorious. 
Uh, I like to go and look at some of the, uh, the, the deep space photos they take with telescopes and things that they've sent out into space. Last, last year, there was this big, uh, there was a lot of uh, new images received from a telescope they sent out a few years back. And uh, I, it's, it's incredible. You can look at these galaxies and these stars that are so far away from us. And all you can do is just sort of sit back and go, man, I'm small. <laughs> man, man, I, I am such a small part of this creation that God made. You feel really tiny. It's, it's glorious. The, the heavens are impressive. You know what's more impressive than the heavens? <laughs> the God who made them. The God who put the stars where they are, who gave them names, who could pick them out for you. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is, you could say, high above all the heavens. So the psalmist just has to sit back in verse 5 and say, who is like him? Where else are you going to find a God like Yahweh? Where else are you going to find a God like our creator, the Lord? He says, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high and who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Uh, man, I love this description because it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a picture for us here. The Lord, it's literally this idea of the Lord has to go up to sit down and he has to lower to see the heavens and the earth. Now, you and I, that's kind of the opposite of what we do, right? We sit down on the earth, and we look up at the glorious things of creation. We look up at the mountains. We look up at the heavens, at the stars, and we sit down low. God does the opposite thing. When God is going to sit on his throne, he sits high above everything else. He looks down on the heavens and the earth. God has to go down and look. Uh, if you remember, after the flood, when all the nations, uh, well, all nations, all the people of the world spoke one language, and you remember what they decided to do? Let's, let's make a name for ourselves, and we're going to build a tower that reaches all the way up to the heavens. You know, they, they want a name as incredible as, you know, as God. We're going to reach up to the heavens. And they built this tower, and they pulled their resources, and they got everything together, and they spoke one language, and it was great. We built a huge tower. And you remember what the Bible tells us, that, that God, <laughs> I think I have that written down. God said, let us... Uh, Genesis eleven four, they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Uh, we've built, man, we built such a huge tower. Look at our name. Look how impressive our reputation is, the word name. And God had to stoop down to go, what are you guys doing down there? <laughs> it's a nice tower you have way down there. When Israel was fleeing from Egypt and they left and they were crossing the Red Sea and God strengthened the hearts of the Egyptian army and they followed Israel into the midst of the Red Sea. And uh, we're told in Exodus 14, in the morning watch, the Lord in a pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. And you remember he clogged the wheels of their chariots and he crushed them with the Red Sea powerful Egyptian army, superpower in the world. They've got more power than anyone else, but God looks down on the Egyptian army, crushes them under his own creation. God's name is above the heavens. And who is like that? Who has that kind of authority? Who has that kind of just presence and impressiveness, that glory, seated on high, looking far down on the heavens and the earth? Truly, there's no other God as impressive as our Lord. Yet, we'll see in these next verses that it's not just 
his might. It's not just his glory. Well, his, his glory, strength, and authority, his, his throne above all. It's not just that the psalmist is praising, but what he does with that position he has. Look in verse 7. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes, with princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. What would you do if you were ruler of the world? I think every kid asks themselves that question at some point, right? You know, if I was king of the world, what would I do? You know, what would I get accomplished with my own power? If you were a ruler, let's say not even over the world, but over all creation, what if you had the stars at your fingertips, the galaxies at your fingertips, what would you do? Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 20 that the rulers of this world, they like to get power to get things accomplished for you know, their own desires. They're going to wield their authority over other people. They're going to get things done the way they want to get things done with their power. We see this today, don't we? People get in power and they get in power most, most of the time, a lot of the time for selfish reasons. Our creator has far more power and authority than any president, than any king of men, any emperor. His name is high above all nations. His glory is high above the heavens. And yet he does not use his glory selfishly, but he uses it to graciously reach down and help those who are low. Who is like that? Who does that? No one else but our Lord. The psalmist illustrates this in two ways. And remember that he's speaking poetically here. These are not, these are not you know, uh, ongoing promises, but these are an illustration of the character of our God. In verse 7, he, he, well, he illustrates this in two ways. He uses the illustration of God raising the impoverished and the other one of blessing the, child, uh, the childless. First, he says, God raises the poor and he lifts up the needy. These two parallel phrases, and what I want you to see here is that um, the, the second phrase kind of intensifies the first one. He first just says he raises the poor from the dust, and literally that means to take someone who is low, that's what the word poor means there, just to be low, probably low in society, maybe lacking materially, um, and to take that person, they're sitting in a humiliating position in the dust, they're sitting in the dirt, and God is the kind of God who he reaches down and he takes the low person, and he makes them stand. That's what that word means, to raise them, to make them stand up from where they are. But then the psalmist makes it a little more intense with the next phrase. Not only does God raise the low person and stands them up from the dust, it says he lifts the needy from the ash heap. All three of those words, a little more intense. Um, to lift means to make high. It's to, it's to bring up. It's the same place you get the word back in verse four, the Lord is high above all nations. Here we're told the Lord takes those who are needy and makes them high up. The needy, not only being uh, lacking or low like the poor, but this word need, it's, it's, it's a little more intense uh, than being just poor. It's, you are probably in need of maybe just those basic human necessities. You're in need. You're in need, and God takes them. He makes them high. He lifts them out of the ash heap, not just the dust, but the ash heap, which means it's, it's refuge, it's garbage, it's waste. The person who's sitting low, the person who's sitting as low as even the needy, God takes them and he reaches up from his position high above the heavens, his glory above the heavens and all above all nations. And he lifts down and he takes that person, stands them up, lifts them high from where they are. 
The second illustration is like this. He talks about uh, the, the childless here. Um, well, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 8. Not only does God take the impoverished and stand them up where they are and lift them up high from where they are, but you notice this in verse 8. It says he, he makes them sit with princes and with the princes of his people. Here's the kind of God that we serve who, who sees the lowly, the poor and the needy and can, and can lift them up, has that power, has that will to, to lift them up and sit them with princes. They've been taken from the position of needing from someone else to being in the position where they bless others with what they have. That's what the word uh, princes or nobles, your Bible might say, means. You're, you're in that kind of that position of the servant of God where you, you give of what you have to bless others. Um, God can take the poor and totally reverse their situation and lift them up to sit them with princes and not only just generally the princes, but the princes of his people. God can take that situation and, and lift up the lowly and, and give them an identity with him among his own. Where once they were cast aside, sitting in the dust and the ash heap, they are now part of his people. In fact, they are a blessed part of his people, being even a prince. Now in verse 9, I mentioned this is, it's, it's a similar illustration here. The psalmist is making the same point with these two illustrations. Because he also says in verse 9 that God, he's the kind of God who gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. If you read in 1 Samuel 2 later, you'll find that the words of this psalm, um, they, they very strongly echo Hannah's prayer. In fact, some of the words seem to be taken right from her prayer. Hannah, who herself was childless and in distress, and she goes and takes her concern to the Lord, and before she even has a child or knows that she's going to have a child, she finds peace because she knows that God is good. <laughs> and she even says herself that, that God is the kind, he's the one who raises up the poor and he lifts up the needy. Like the poor and the needy, uh, the childless might be viewed as, as cursed in the eyes of men, might be viewed as, as uh, again, something to be despised, someone to be despised. But just like the poor and needy, even the childless is loved by the Lord and blessed, the psalmist says. Though she might feel downcast, might feel helpless, might feel like, you know, there's, she's been left alone by the world, cursed by the eyes of men. She is not cast away. She is not left alone by the creator of the universe. Even he, in his high up position, can see the lowest in society is the idea here. He sees them. The Lord has the power to bring joy and comfort in her life, even with children, if he should see fit. These examples at the end of this psalm, they're, they're poetic. They're not promises here. Uh, it, it, this isn't a promise that every poor person in this world who doesn't have a lot of wealth, if they trust in the Lord, tomorrow they're going to wake up and they're going to be a king in this world over all this earth. And the same is true for the woman. It's not a, it's not a physical promise that, that uh, he's going to fill every single woman's house with, with many children. But it's an illustration, both of these, of what the Lord does with his glory, what he has chosen to do with his own position. He willingly lifts up and cares for the lowly, the people who are, who are cast aside, who are cast out. God can reach down and loves to reach down and to lift people up. He may or may not choose to bless physically, but he always lifts the humble who trust in him in the best way possible. The Lord is high above, but he chooses to come low. He takes what's low, and he lifts it up high. 
He takes what's lonely, he gives it fellowship and family. He takes what's helpless, and he gives it help. No other God or man has to descend so low as our God to reach down to the lowest parts of humanity and lift it up, and yet he chooses to do so. He does it willingly. He does it eagerly. And it's not because any one of us deserves it. It's not because any one of us uh, are something that he needs. God's going to keep being God without me or with me. It's simply because he has chosen to love us. And there's no better demonstration of that unique love that this psalmist is talking about than in his son, Jesus Christ. We've spent all the last week studying about who Christ is in VBS and learning all these I am statements. Uh, The son of God, he's the creator of the universe. He is the I am, as we've seen. Yet he chose to step down from his glorious throne above the heavens and live as one of us. To step down from a, a name that's high above all the nations and all the heavens and come to us. He traded a position above the nations for the form of a man, a servant, giving his own life and glory for your benefit and for my benefit. That if we trust in his sacrificial life, he'll forgive our sins for eternity and give us abundant life. God has spiritual blessings for those who trust in him. God blesses the humble. The truth is, because of our sin, we're all in a position of great need without the Lord. In a way, we're all like these two examples of the poor and needy or the childless and that we, we, we need help. And God has chosen to reach down and help us. He, didn't, he didn't, wasn't blinded by his own glory. He wasn't blinded by his own position as a creator of the universe, but he looked as far down as me and as far down as you, saw our need and reached to help us. And now the poor and needy find riches beyond measure in the kingdom of Christ. The childless woman finds comfort and family and security in Christ. And so you just have to back up at the end of the psalm and go, who is like our God? Who is like that? Whose name is more deserving of praise than our God? And the psalmist ends it with praise the Lord. The application from this psalm for us is twofold, I think. First, know this, that the most high God, whose name is so far above your your name and my name, that as glorious as he is and as big as he is, he does not overlook you. He does not miss the things that you're going through, the things that you need. If you realize you're a sinner, that you need to be forgiven of your sins, that you're not in right standing with God, I need to trust Christ as my savior, then you can trust in him and he will save you and he'll lift you up and give you a place with his family. He'll give you a name and identity with him. And if you're already his child, know that God will never forsake you. He doesn't discard you after trusting in his son. Instead, Peter wrote this, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, lift you up, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Imagine that. The creator of the universe cares about Connor. Creator of the universe cares about you. But if the application stops there, I think we've missed something important. The most high God, our Savior, he has set the standard for what greatness looks like. He has set the example of what a great name is. And that is a person who is willing to serve others before self. If the creator of the universe chooses to show grace, And to reach down to the needy, what should we do? If he's willing to give of himself to bless others and to serve others, what should we be doing? 
If God doesn't overlook even the, the, the lowest, quote, among society, then what should we be doing? Have this mind among yourselves, Paul wrote, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, literally a thing to be held on selfishly for yourself, uh, but emptied himself, he opened his hands, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was for me. That was for you. I hope this morning, reflecting on this psalm, that you can offer a genuine hallelujah to the Lord. <laughs> you can offer a genuine word of praise to Yahweh because he deserves it. There is no other God like him who is so willing to serve those who are beneath him. Let's follow in his example. If you would, please stand as we prepare for an invitation. We'll have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for seeing us. Thank you for not overlooking us, Lord. Lord, but before we even knew what we needed, God, you were preparing your son to die for our sins. God, I pray that our church would follow in your example, that our church would have the kind of humility, the kind of grace toward others that you've shown toward us. And Lord, I pray this morning, if there's someone here who knows their need, they know they're in a position where they need to be helped, they need to be lifted up out of their own sin, Lord, that they would trust in you before it's too late. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.